50 years ago this week, of course, at 195 hours, 18 minutes and 18 seconds, the historic Apollo 11 mission drew to a close when the astronauts made splashdown off the coast of Hawaii. This week in the parish, perhaps not such an epic for the, well, one step for Borses, one giant step for Bors kind, but nonetheless, an interesting week all round. Welcome to the Exchange Invest Weekly. My name is Patrick L. Young. I must admit, by midweek, it was tough not having that live stream 50 years on to listen to the Apollo 11 missions as I was producing Exchange Invest. But nonetheless, the parish didn't disappoint for news. We had a raft of results coming out. Most of them were actually highly encouraging. Nasdaq second quarter earnings topped estimates. True, they slightly missed on revenues, but overall it was a very, very encouraging set of numbers. And overall, once again, it actually showed the vast diversity and the move towards, well, non-exchange core services that Nasdaq has been making over time, as in many ways it becomes a very, very broadly based technology company. True enough, the day before, we'd had the amusing aside of a, an analyst from City who stepped forward and offered one of those things called a sale recommendation, hadn't even realised that they actually still existed. Intercontinental went to neutral, Nasdaq went to sale, the following day Nasdaq produced epically good results once again, and I suppose the recommendations are history. One of the interesting asides that we saw in the Nasdaq business was certainly the way that their private markets have actually set new transaction records in the first half of 2019. Obviously, it's a very bubbling private equity market. There's a lot of people have been looking towards IPOs, and obviously a lot more people are deciding to stay private for the time being, thanks to, well, subjects passive that we've been discussing in the newsletter for the course of the past six or seven years. However, quite interesting to see how Nasdaq really are making progress with their private markets initiative at a time when many other wannabe competitors have either exited the market or scaled down. Overall, if we were to look back across the business of Nasdaq per se, I suppose one area for concern would happen to be in fixed income, where despite their acquisition of eSpeed a number of years ago, there seems to be near stagnation in that business, despite the fact that, well, during the course of the week, we also saw results from market access, where they truly were powering ahead as well across the board. And of course, there's also that issue, well, one might argue there is some degree of potential bond cyclicity at this stage in the overall economy. Over in Germany, the beast is alive. The Deutsche Börse posted a 27% rise in quarter two net profit and they confirmed their 2019 targets. Very interesting. I mean, DB1 retains an incredible talent pool and there's a huge engine of growth potential within their business. But it seems to be difficult to know where to start to actually make that really achieve its potential. As I shared in the newsletter this week, it's a conundrum I seem to share with its CEO. Or perhaps he just hasn't got around to the chronic messaging failure which leaves DB1 looking a great deal less coherent than the reality of its many excellent business units. There was no update, incidentally, on FX All negotiations. That would be FX All being bought from Refinitiv, which, of course, well, after the bell, we had a little bit more news on that to come. DFM started the week's results off, actually, the Dubai financial market. Their Q2 net profit rose 9% on improved income from investments, uh, amongst other things. Meanwhile, BGC were perhaps one of the more disappointing partners during the course of the week. Their quarter two earnings were lagging estimates. 
CMC markets were one of the first to see their operating income rise, the first, I mean, that have been affected by, of course, the many swinging cuts and restrictions in leverage allowed for retail clients following an ESMA decision last year. In many respects, perhaps the oddest part of the entire week's results were, despite the fact that market access is overall numbers looked incredibly encouraging, because the earnings missed expectations, we saw the shares slide. Amongst the beasts awaking this week, certainly one of them is clearly the beast of the deal. The good folks of Goldman Sachs, amongst others, are out on the street trying to shop the concept of what might be done with Euroclear's shareholder structure, and therefore we learned from Bloomberg that CVC and indeed GIC are amongst those who might be eyeing a stake. Very interesting to see the Singaporean Sovereign Wealth Fund having a sniff, although at the same time they always seem to be mentioned in these sorts of stories, as do indeed, well, CVC. Nonetheless, it would appear to me well, a mere decade after I pointed out the value that could be found in Euroclear, there's going to be a lot of interest in this $6.4 billion business, whether it goes to an IPO or there's some sort of a stake sale in the meantime. Elsewhere, Robinhood, those people who offer you incredibly cheap, aka free share dealing in the United States of America, albeit selling your order flow, they have managed to raise another $323 million at a valuation of $7.6 billion. I must admit I'm really struggling with this one. I mean, given the concept of Robinhood being free, but that actually involves de facto selling your trades to the rich to give to the poor zero-cost commission, arguably that's not best execution. True, this is a network effect in action, which therefore must account for a great deal of the valuation. However, at a $7.6 billion valuation, surely folks are sinking hundreds of millions of dollars to be on the tail end of what could turn out to be one of the most excitingly vast class action suits and securities of all time at the point when the investors belatedly do their due diligence and realise that they're actually not getting, as I said before, best execution. I may be missing something, but frankly I can think of vastly better investments to be had at this valuation, and indeed way, way below this valuation on any sense of multiple. Over at Euronext, Stefan Buna, whether you love him or loathe him, and indeed intuitively it strikes me that uh, amongst those camps one of them's a little bit light of balanced support, I have to admit I'm, I'm often very impressed by the sheer candour of Stefan Buna. I'm not sure the undertone of Euronex being responsible for destroying the merge of equal expert. I'm not sure that the undertone of Euronex being responsible for destroying the merger of equal desperation was entirely fair or entirely apt within this interview, but fair is fair. Buna's Euronex ensured it plays its part in destroying a dog of a deal. Overall, an interesting profile worth reading. Meanwhile, an element of seller's regret was creeping into the media. Have the banks in some way signed their own death warrants, trumpeted one headline, for example, in eFinancial Careers, over their sales of stakes in TradeWeb at the IPO. Interesting to see. Of course, they said the same thing about exchanges a decade or more ago, but that doesn't stop banks ultimately juicing their results when they're desperate by selling stakes in different platforms that they own. In fact, of course, that's the strategy which was pioneered by Reuters that kept them afloat for about 20 years. The story of Brexit loomed large once again during the course of this week. First of all, we were hearing all manner of doubts over how much access the UK financial sector can expect to the EU after Brexit. And indeed, we were seeing a series of, well, quite fascinatingly obstructionist moves from the EU who are busy trying to strip all manner of perfectly reasonable jurisdictions of some degree of equivalence. 
absolutely, completely and utterly, some see this as being a sign of, well, effectively, sabre-rattling ahead of Brexit itself. I personally find it quite difficult to see how the European Union can survive without the spigot of funding from non-EU financial centres, and particularly from the City of London, which is the largest global financial centre of them all. However, whether or not the EU have decided to bend, it was certainly a lively week in British politics because, of course, we had the election as party leader of the Conservative Party in the UK of Boris Johnson. Now, Boris Johnson has come in. He's produced a properly coherent Brexiteerian cabinet. They've all had to sign up to the idea that a no deal is potentially on the table. And at the same time, the mainstream media has gone into overdrive and lots of very white bourgeois people have ended up marching around London being terribly upset about the idea that this might endanger their lifestyles. That's, of course, entirely not in keeping with the majority of views in the country, where 17.4 million votes were potentially being ignored by the previous government. Hopefully I will never have to speak about Theresa May again. Let this be the last mention of her exit in disgrace from government after, well, shambolic failures over three years. A star was born. A star shot to the stars. A star achieved, well, something approaching re-entry. It didn't quite make splashdown, but the star market certainly did have a trajectory rather like, well, a failed missile shot in the early days of the satellite era. On the first day of the 25 stocks trading, every last one of them at least doubled in what was described as a dream start for the technology board, which seeks to somewhat replicate a form of Nasdaq-like trading in China based out of Shanghai. By day three, things were much more muted because, of course, day two, we had the absolutely sensational hangover where a lot of things fell back to earth quite rapidly and of course that opened up to a lot of cynical headlines. Shanghai's funhouse mirror, Nasdaq, shows what's wrong with Chinese markets, harumphed the Wall Street Journal in just one of many different headlines. The South China Morning Post was perhaps sniffiest of all. China's answer to Nasdaq turns out to be a one-day wonder after all. I don't think it is a one-day wonder, but at the same time with the amount of hype that went into it, I think the Shanghai Tech Board is going to require, well, a little bit more maturity and a little bit more investor maturity before it's going to really reach its potential. Elsewhere in Hong Kong, some worrying news is the possibility that the Chinese military can actually intervene in the civil unrest in Hong Kong relating to some rather abysmal pieces of governmental action in terms of an extradition law, which is hugely opposed in the country. Even the Chinese-born Charles Lee, chief executive of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, cautioned against military intervention during the course of the week, as obviously that potentially could be a somewhat worrying factor for the Hong Kong Exchange itself and the entire Hong Kong Financial Centre. At the same time, Charles Lee was very bullish overall. The Shanghai Tech Board is an asset for the Hong Kong Exchange, he noted during the course of the week. And then finally, a wonderful piece of transparency in Hong Kong. Well, it's not wonderful, I suppose, if you're the Justice Minister. But thanks to, well, the very, very pedestrian business of everyday filings, it transpires that the Hong Kong Justice Minister, Tse Chung-yuk, has been revealed as a substantial shareholder in her husband's recently listed company. I have no idea of the probity of the situation. I have no idea of whether or not this is a good thing or a bad thing. I have not even attempted to read into it. What I do see is, whatever the merits of this argument, one thing is clear. Our parish provides transparency and clarity where even government may fail to have considered how to present this information. 
when we consider life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Changes, our bourses are doing a good job keeping us informed of ownership and that helps society flourish on a basis of mutual trust. In People News, Isabel Girolami will be joining LCH to be the head of LCH Limited on November the 1st. Coming from Credit Agricole Bank, where she most recently served as deputy CEO of the corporate investment banking business. She's replacing Martin Pluves, who had previously announced his intention to stand down. Over at the Indian Energy Exchange, that's the IEX, which is actually listed in India, as opposed to the IEX, the famous stock exchange of flashboy discussions in, uh, in the United States of America. We saw the elevation of Rajiv Srivastava as CEO and also the elevation of Satyanarayan Goel to the post of chairman. Congratulations to both and also to Emily Westerberg, who's been named the chief counsel of the Division of Trading and Markets at the SEC. In new markets this week, lots of interesting little developments. Square Book has been approved by the FCA. That's the latest venture from a very well-known figure in the London cash equity market, Richard Balarkas. It paves the way and trumpets in its press releases. The news that it's seeking to unbundle equity primary markets, bringing innovation and competition to the IPO process. Elsewhere, we saw a billionaire launch the SwissX Global Hemp Exchange which is, of course, going to be a cannabis-tied cryptocurrency business. Hmm, interesting. Liquify, close to $2.6 million pre-A funding round. That was led by Ideonomics and NEO. Now, the interesting thing about Ideonomics are that they recently purchased a controlling stake in the failed bourse, the Delaware Board of Trade, which still holds an alternative trading systems license in the USA. One might be able to perceive a pattern emerging there. Elsewhere, interesting to see that a Mexican cryptocurrency exchange, Bitso, received a DLT license from the Gibraltar Financial Services Commission. Quite fascinating, of course, because as you may recall, just a few weeks ago, we were talking about the kind of Catch-22 regulatory format that seemed to be introduced in Mexico, which was, well, causing exchanges to have some difficulty being regulated. Albeit, this platform says it is actually able to operate under the Mexican fintech law, but has clearly given itself a bit of a global hedge with the Gibraltar license. In Tehran, the stock exchange will launch a prime market. And meanwhile, BGC partners, uh, on the day of their rather disappointing results, introduced a new electronic trading platform, Phoenix Global Options. It's an exchange-listed futures and options platform in collaboration with a series of leading international liquidity providers such as Optiver, IMC and Maven Securities. Elsewhere, WeMatch, which seeks to cut out voice broking in a lot of swaps business, has seen membership from HSBC, RBC, and indeed backing from JP Morgan. Very, very interesting development there, further to the many SEFs that are already amongst us. Over in the Mauritius Stock Exchange, they're eyeing the African mainland for expansion, which could prove to be a very, very interesting and fruitful proposition. Over in product news, the National Stock Exchange of India's clearing arm seems to have maintained a stunning lead, if not even enhanced their lead, after the interoperability measures kicked in just a few weeks ago. That's, of course, in cash stock equities, but reportedly they're getting anything up to 95% of the market choosing NSE for cash equity clearing. Wow, in the interests of competition, SEBI seemed to have created a monopoly. Interesting aside to that was a story in the Business Standard this week where brokers are exiting the cash segment in India. 
Overall, because they don't believe they can manage to make any money. The numbers of actual registered brokers have dropped by a quarter over a 12-month period, apparently. Still in India, the Hindu Business Line had an excellent article wondering about, well, the possibility of commodities needing a policy push. That comes 15 years after the launch of commodity derivatives trade, which was really, I suppose, heading towards the high watermark of the career of Jignesh Shah with the launch of MCX. Parallel to that, of course, was the NCDEX, which is still around as well to this day. Those national and nationwide exchanges seem to have done incredibly well, but there is still, according to this article, a sense of underachievement in terms of products and trading volumes. I would tend to say immediately, isn't the problem the centralisation and the nationwide issue to what is an incredibly vast, continent-sized country? Over at the London Metals Exchange, LME are preparing a rule that will reveal huge private metal stockpiles. That ought to be an interesting move for transparency. Over in China, they're going to launch a Star 50 Index to track the new Nasdaq-style board. After the course of the first three days, of course, don't forget, that would probably be the most volatile stock index on Earth and give, well, actually most of the cryptocurrencies a run for their money even on a busy day. Over at the CME Group, they're launching Black Sea Sunflower Oil. They're going to be a financially settled future and they're based upon a Platts Index. Well done. Bravo to Ian Dudden and the Platts team there. Excellent work by CME in conjunction. They already recently launched what has already proven to be a very, very successful Black Sea Wheat future, as well as Black Sea Corn contracts on a similar basis. Meanwhile, back in India, SEBI is considering the idea of allowing commodity futures deliveries from the warehouses of sellers. Sounds very exciting, as long as it's policed properly and we don't end up with the same fiasco as the National Spot Exchange, where there were, what, how one put it, Pachemkin warehouses left, right and centre in the overall process. This ought to be a very, very useful ad. For those who are excited about volumes overall, the FIA were out to notice the fact that overall volume in futures and options is trending up by 19.7% over the first half of 2019 compared to 2018. And indeed, we're about to see a new futures market, ladies and gentlemen, because the Baku Stock Exchange are preparing to launch futures contracts in the near future. Over on the listing world in the SME end of the forum, competitor platform ZARX, which is one of the minnows taking on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, has partnered up with the equity crowd platform, uh, crowdfunding platform Uprise Africa in order to list startups on the bourse. Meanwhile, the Bahamas, the Bahamas International Stock Exchange, BISX, announced that they were very close to listing government debt. And indeed, they noted the fact that earlier in the week we heard that their latest broker member is none other than the Central Bank of the Bahamas, which would seem to presage the idea that debt listings of government securities must be coming very, very soon. In crypto news, well, there's the possibility of a government-backed cryptocurrency. That, of course, would be great news and manna from heaven to everybody in the crypto world who wants to see the establishment taking on the possibility of some sort of a Bitcoin relative being the currency of a nation. The only slight worry is it's the Palestinian Authority. They're considering taking on the cryptocurrency to replace the Israeli shekel. There is a significant body of opinion that a government deploying their own cryptocurrency will mark a great leap forward for this brave new world. My problem is I'm just unconvinced that a Palestinian endorsement is going to be the step forward. That said, the German central bank chief, a man who's actually been named recently as possibly in line even to go to the IMF in the near future, Jens Weidmann, he said that he's actually in favour of Facebook's Libra Crypto. 
Why not? Let's face it, the ECB have done very well recently repurposing a lot of old technology to actually make some quite useful payment systems for conventional banks across Europe. Therefore, he must be hoping that, well, Facebook can manage to perform the same trick with a lot of old legacy technology in the world of crypto. Meanwhile, the grown-ups are in the pavilion. Backed started testing last Monday. In regulation, some may think the most exciting thing to have happened in social media all week was news that Instagram are removing likes. Some see it as a way to stop young girls being influenced over the shapes of their bodies. Some see it as a way to also basically take away the untrammeled power of influencers and therefore allow Instagram a better chance to have commercial advertising on their books. However, from the perspective of the parish, the most interesting news in social media this week was the fact that UK lenders may be required to keep more cash on their balance sheets to withstand social media fueled bank runs. Ah, bank runs. Takes you back, doesn't it? There's the sort of thing that used to be, well, in the case of an old-fashioned, ignorant, analogue polity, they used to get terribly upset, terribly overwrought, and therefore would end up demanding their money bank co- back, causing a run on the banks and all sorts of, well, genuine bankruptcy, not just for the bankers, but for people who didn't get there in time. Nowadays, it can all happen in five minutes, thanks to Twitter. Meanwhile, Facebook are going to face a $100 million fine for misleading investors about the risk they faced from the misuse of user data. This is, of course, Facebook, who are about to try and launch a global cryptocurrency called Libra. Would you trust your data with this social network? In technology, Nasdaq had one interesting sale this week. They're going to be delivering matching engine technology to a business called the Football Index. It's essentially a fantasy football buy and sell your footballing stars proposition paying dividends according to how well the said footballers perform. Interesting sale, and also gives Nasdaq a a very key additional position in the overall gaming, wagering and related sports trading environment, based upon the bedrocks of their customer base, which of course include the Monster Tab Corporation in Australia, the absolutely mammoth Hong Kong Jockey Club, and also ATG in Sweden. Actually, come to think of it, I missed out some people news earlier. Eko Fefezje has been appointed the acting MD of the Ghana Stock Exchange. You'll recall that his predecessor, Kofi Yamoa, who's been there since, I think, 2003, announced that he was going to be standing down. That was announced at the AGM and reported in Exchange Invest 1520. Which leads me all in the middle of the people section to remind you, if you find this an interesting pricey of what has gone on during the course of the week in exchanges, Bear in mind the fact that there are at least another 120 stories every week being covered by the only daily parish newsletter. Exchange Invest, exchangeinvest.com. You can sign up for more details or you can send me an email, patrick at derivativesvision.com. I'll be happy to tell you more about the subscriber options, which start from $200 per user year. And you can manage to get, well, almost 250 daily newsletters, each discussing everything that's going on in the parish of exchanges and includes the unique PLY insight. Back in Hong Kong, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority is going to promote their veteran employee Eddie Yu to head the city-state's de facto central bank. So that, ladies and gentlemen, was the entire news from the parish during the course of the week. But, of course, I can't possibly leave you without making one comment. Ah, the refinitive issue, possibly the world's worst brand ever seen in the parish or related to the parish, of course, could well soon be bought by the biggest or one of the biggest name brands in the parish, the London Stock Exchange. Very exciting news. Watch this space. I will be doing updates for subscribers. 
possibly even as early as across the weekend, but certainly come Monday in the newsletter, I will be happy to tell you more. Feel like you're missing out? All the pith is in Exchange Invest, exchangeinvest.com. Email me, patrick at derivativesvision.com, for more information on how you can become a paying subscriber and get the inside track on everything to do with the world of bourses. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Patrick L. Young, and the only thing standing between me and the end of this podcast is, of course, Stan Hasselgaard's wondrous out-of-copyright music. Take it away, Stan. (laughs) Thank you.